0: Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hello, my name is Will Hodgkinson. I'm the rock and pop critic of The Times, and as part of that job, and as a general enthusiast for music, I spent quite a lot of time at a venue called the Brixton Windmill, which is a flat roof pub at the top of Brixton Hill, which over the last two decades really has become pretty much the epicenter of the capital's underground music scene. And a lot of that is down to a man called Tim Perry, who's a former music journalist who came to the windmill one day and, well, pretty much never left. And Tim Perry, you're here with us now. Tim, say hello. Hello, Will. Hello, everyone. Are you there, Tim? Yeah, hello. So, Tim, we really met because... Hello. We met because um, I got interested in the windmill. We were going to take a whole bunch of bands out to South by Southwest as a showcase of the windmill, really, and as a celebration. And although that never happened, what did come out of it was that I managed to write a book for Rough Trade Books on the windmill called tog a short history of the windmill and tim you were very very helpful in in my doing that so what i wanted to begin by asking you is i guess how you got involved with the windmill in the first place
1: oh by being out so too late at night basically <laughs> yeah it was nice. sort of a tale of of being uh, out too late at night and ended up with the windmill but um yeah, as you're saying, I used to be a music journalist, a freelance, and made uh, a mate, Piers, who was also a, a journalist. Uh, we wrote together on vol- uh, a magazine called Volume once. Uh, we got, you know, got into a chat, and you know, if you could only listen to one genre of music ever, you know you know, what would it be? And I go, oh, that's too hard. What about two? And I was going, well, country and hip-hop, that would do me forever. And then we decided to do a country and hip-hop night in a bar uh, that actually makes the windmill look like a palace. It was called Brady's uh, in centre of Brixton. And we had the idea of either having hip-hop artists and playing country music or playing, you know, country artists or Americana and uh, playing uh, with hip-hop DJs. So... That sort of worked in a strange way, and that's how I got into live promoting.
0: And that was the very beginning of your relationship, I guess, with the windmill. So, uh, yeah, just it, before it it, it it preceded
1: the windmill actually by a couple of years. And then, okay. and then, the, then so... the, and then, the ve- then the venue closed down, and uh, we were looking for another home, and the
0: windmill seemed to be that sort of place. Seemed to be ideal. I'm going to ask you about the country and hip hop collision, which I think uh, is a you know something you may well have invented yourself. Before we get there, I wanted to play a song which was fairly important for the for the windmill. Uh, the band was and been a huge influence on so many of the bands that have, have since played, and this is "Golden Apples" by the Country Teasers. <laughs> Golden Apples by Country Teasers, one of the classic windmill bands. But, Tim, I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you, before you got to the windmill, you were just saying that you were putting on a country hip-hop night at a place which you said made the windmill look like the Ritz, called Brady's. Tell us about that period.
1: Oh, that was in Brixton. It was pretty wild. And um, there wasn't really much going on in South London. I think, like... I um, don't know how long you've lived in South London, but this was, like, the mid... This the late 90s. And... It seemed like a sort of deserted town at parts, you know. If you're uptown and you know at a club or you know a gig, trying to get a taxi home or whatever was just, you know, now nah, we're not going to South London, mate. So it was pretty insular. And the big name around then was Alabama Three, and actually yeah, you know, we, managed to, we managed to persuade them to do their first ever uh, acoustic set, which was the full band but basically acoustic. Um, And went on to the name of Larry Love Show Band, which I think they still, you know, do every now and again. So that was quite a coup to get them on the first night. And that was like sort of country techno. And, you know, that was their thing. So it really fitted in really well with what we were doing, you know.
0: Just tell me exactly how country and hip hop works. Does this does this mean that you're playing a hip hop track next to a country track, or are you mixing them together, or what were you doing?
1: Uh, it, would, it would be more the la- uh, combining the live element and the uh, DJ element. So for the most part, it was actually country, but with uh, instead of playing like um, you know country in between the live acts, we'd play we play hip hop. Although we did like uh, have some really good rappers, like Jesse Double O One, who was in the Guinness Book of Records at the time for being the fastest rapper in the world. Um, and then we'd play, like, really sad country songs, you know, you know, in between. But, uh, yeah, it was mostly um, playing songs. And the song that really inspired the whole project was Public Enemy. Uh, he got game because they sampled Crosby, Stills and Nash. And we thought, wow, what else is country, you know, uh, sort of sampled? Or oh, hip-hop, what has it sampled in the country world? So it got us to thinking and, you know, managed to get a better... Two and a half hours set out of it.
0: Not bad. So you saw this connection, which I guess most people hadn't really thought about before.
1: Uh, maybe not drunk that much to actually realise it, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I think that might be more. I'm not. I'm not taking any. I'm not taking any intellectual
0: claim on it. Yes, it wasn't it was exactly an intellectual
1: a... <laughs> pursuit. No, it was not. No, fair enough. <laughs> a bit of
0: drunk, drunken madness. So let me ask uh, you yeah, one thing, yeah, because the like next that. the next person we're going to play. Now, yeah. So the, this is Chip Taylor. Uh, this is this is Brixton by Chip Taylor. But Chip Taylor, as people might know, is a very famous songwriter. He wrote Wild Thing and Angel of the Morning. How come he, did he come and play at your night? What happened with Chip Taylor? Uh, yes, he did. Um, I think that was through journalism that I
1: knew that I knew Chip, and I also knew John Langford from uh, the Mekons. Um, And John now lives in uh, Chicago and um, is very involved in the Americana or alt country or um, rebel country or whatever scene you want to call it. And um, Chip was over on some press trip and John was over and managed to persuade Chip to uh, form a bit of an all-star band with uh, the great pedal steel player, uh, BJ Cole, and some other Mekons. And also um, the uh, a guy called Robbie Fulkes, who was a great uh, old country guy at the time, and played in Brady's and it was a complete storm. It was great.
0: Well, let's hear it. This is Brixton by Chip Taylor. Robbie took a fast train. Huh? Said he'd never
1: been that far And Rico and John came down from the north In the back of a railroad
0: car They said, oh baby, now don't you
1: scare us Cole, Damn, this Lord, It's B.J. Cole and Los Pistoleros Then this could be tears, a bottle of whiskey in my shaking hand. There's gonna be peace in the valley tomorrow
0: That was Brixton by Chip Taylor and Peace in the Valley by Alabama 3. So, Tim, this is the period we're just talking about where pre-the windmill, you're working as a music journalist, you're seeing that Brixton's quite a rough place that taxi drivers don't want to go to, and over maybe a few too many beers, you think let's put country and hip-hop together and put it on as a night at Brady's. So I guess uh, Alabama 3 would have been one of the bands that would have played there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah um in fact they played
1: the inaugural night uh did an acoustic set as the Larry Love show band
0: Okay so did you know about the windmill at th- th- this point had you been there before because because the windmill was really you know a traditional irish pub before before it became what it is now Now funnily enough i discovered the windmill one night uh, one morning one morning
1: after an alabama 3 uh gig it was the after show was there in the morning uh so we went to this uh, we didn't even know where it was. We got lost because we have been up all night and your sense of direction isn't very good then. And uh, we eventually found this flat-roof pub with a couple of dogs on the roof. And, um, yeah, it just was like a time warp. But also it reminded me, because of its architecture and the low roof and everything, reminded me of a lot of venues that had been in America uh, when I was working in America. And it just seemed like a sort of potential for a dive bar. And, you know it's got a different feel to most English, you know, live music venues. Most seem to be in bigger, older Victorian pubs or whatever. And this was like a sort of, you know, thing built in 1971 with a low roof It probably, you know, didn't have a life expectancy of, you know, 50 years or whatever. They just threw this thing up. But it really reminded me of, you know, American venues that are maybe built on strip malls and stuff like that. And I I really liked it the first time I stepped into it.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about for people who haven't been to the windmill, the kind of place it is. Because, as you just said, you know most British venues will be either in you know old Victorian buildings, or they'll be purpose-built, and so on. But this was a pub which was built as part of a council estate, and this is something which is a very, very British phenomenon where council estates were basically replicating the working class areas that they that, that they were replacing in the in the from the fifties to the sixties to the seventies, and the windmill was, you know, it was seen as part of this thing. So you had the council estate and you'd have a park and you had the pub before you uh, before you got there. Um, what did, did the windmill? Well, maybe when you first came to the windmill, did you see a lot of locals there? You know, were there a lot of people from the council estate who were drinking in there?
1: Uh, yeah, there was quite a few, and you know, quite a few Irish. But yeah, you know, well, Brixton was quite a big Irish area, so there was, you know, some sort of, you know, fairly older Irish types in there as well. But yeah, um, yeah, there was. But again, there probably wasn't enough to keep a pub viable, which was where live music came into it, really.
0: So we should talk about the pub's landlord, Seamus, and Seamus was. <laughs> He's a very important figure here. It's a shame he can't be with us right now.
1: I'm sure he'd love to be. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he'd love to be, uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, nah, I don't think radio is really his thing. Uh, yeah, but um, he took over no. in early 90s, I think. And then, like, before I came on, while Brady's was still on, you know, there was drum on bass nights and all sorts of things on there, whatever would bring the punters in at the weekend, really. Uh, There was some jazz, some comedy and stuff like that. Uh, It was all very, very local stuff, though.
0: Well, the interesting thing is that one of the things Seamus told me is that uh, the problems he faced with the windmill was a bigger problem that was happening in in Britain, and that was that the Irish community was leaving. So, you know, initially, there there was a lot of Irish families on the estate, and they'd be using the windmill just as the local pub. And, you know, this is a flat roof pub. It's not a, it's not a smart place. It's very, very much a kind of, uh, you know, it's quite, it's, it's quite, quite straightforward. But think, he said think, the. Think, the, the
1: uh, I think the pub from Shameless, if people can't imagine, think yes. the pub from Shameless, something like that.
0: Exactly. And I think that's kind of, uh, yeah, that, that's uh, on a smarter night, it's the pub from Shameless. But <laughs> it was, you know, the, the interesting thing, what he said that was happening was that the Irish were leaving. The, the community were leaving, the you know, younger Irish people just weren't coming over in the way that, you know, they once did. They're going back to Dublin, where the money was, or they're going to Australia. So he said, he said the the key moment was the St. Patrick's night, which he said was half empty. And, you know, he said, oh, I've got to do something. And I think that's probably just before you arrived, Tim.
1: Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I think he always wanted to keep going with Pat, St. Pat, uh, Paddy's night. But I don't know, there's not that many people really like diddly deeds It's for Diddley D music is for tourists in Dublin, you know. Right. So, yeah. and
0: uh, I get, I, 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 just, just from your description, Tim, I feel that you don't particularly like Diddley D music.
1: I like Appalachian diddly D music, but not is that so fair much. To to say? Of, uh, yeah. I, I, well, there's a big connection, isn't there? But um, I don't know. Like, whenever I do listen to folk music, I probably listen to a lot more American stuff than, uh, than Irish stuff.
0: After. Seamus realised that the pub was, wasn't was going to survive as a place for Irish traditional music. Tim, you came in around that time, and one of the most significant gigs, a legendary gig apparently, was the 5678s. Now, that's the the all-female Japanese band who featured in Kill Bull 2, which had just come out. Is that right, Tim? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Kill Bull
1: 2 had just come out. So it was like, wow, <laughs> you know. Um, it was a little bit oversubscribed, that gig.
0: And this is Woohoo by the 5678. Woohoo, woohoo. That was Woohoo by the 5678. He played a legendary, very, very oversubscribed, potentially riotous gig at the windmill. Now, Tim, at this point, you're working as a music journalist. You started putting on nights. You, we've already talked about how you were putting on nights at Brady's. When did you actually swap over from music journalism to booking the windmill full-time? Uh, I think
1: uh, music journalism made that decision for me, and uh, I just couldn't do two <laughs> things at the same time. Uh, so uh, the bar won out. Uh, but I was thinking, you know, those days, wow, this is easy. We've got the five, six, seven, eights. We also had, like, a gig from Clexico and uh, Kurt Wagner, uh, who's the leader of Lamb Chop, basically backed up by Clexico, thought this is going to be so easy getting, you know, it's just going to be so much fun and getting all these big names to this scrappy little pub and it's just going to be so easy, but it's not. It's so competitive. So um, It didn't turn out that way. It, 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 it just doesn't turn out that way. It never does, um, you know, unless you're Uber Rich you and give people like loads of money to do it, but it just never turned out that way. And I realized that, well, it's actually hard work. So you had a good so Do
0: you path. think in those in those early days, do you think that it was beginner's lark or do you think it was one one name leading to another? Why do you think that you had such a you know, when you first took over, what do you think attracted all those, you know, fairly big names to this this little flat roof pub in Brixton? I think
1: I probably had some connections through journalism, but also I think probably novelty as well. Uh I don't think there were as many venues around, or there wasn't really that many venues around, uh, or it was all like, I don't know, just
0: boring indie music. And you were looking at something else, because this was, you know, a lot of con- kind of alternative country, really, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, that was quite big at the time, and um,
1: I think I had a lot of connections in that world as well, but... I don't know, it's maybe you just get bored with something after a while and that's sort of, you know, filtered out a bit. You know, we did we did do we did do an an album with Chip Taylor on it and um Neil Halstead from Slow Dive, uh was on there doing a solo thing. Uh Neil did some really beautiful Americana solo stuff. Uh also Ross from Mochiba uh teamed up with a sort of classical musician and did like a sort of bluesy classical country track on it. Those things were interesting, but then when it came down to just people with beards and played shirts uh just doing you know straight americana sort of type stuff, it got pretty boring pretty soon
0: so instead, you went down uh, a route of i guess what one of the one of the things that you did, which was innovative was to get bands to book their own nights. And I think that one of the key ones was a band called Claw, who was, uh, I mean, now I guess, would you call it indie dance? They were the kind of forerunners of a lot of bands that then became very famous, like the Claxons. So what was? Yeah. how did you discover Claw? How did you discover Claw? And, and tell me about that period. Well, uh, Claw, one of the two singers in Claw,
1: Barry was in a band called... God, I can't remember their name now. But it was sort of, I don't know, sort of slowish, jazzy, indish, sort of deer-hoofy type stuff. And they sent me a demo of, or gave me a CD of uh, Claw, and I just thought, wow, this is amazing. Put them on the first night, they just smashed the support band. They smashed the headliners. who so stupidly had decided to uh, do an acoustic set that night. So there's this explosion of beats and massive guitars just wiped it all out. And I think after about five shows, they got they got signed to Parlophone. Uh, the you know think the music industry was very different in those days. Le- major labels were signing people every month. You know now. You know, other signing bands every month, and yeah, claw just became massive. And I think that they just really liked the windmill, and we decided to do a thing called Club Claw, where they would just curate it themselves, and that became massively that 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 became massively popular. You know, all we had to do really was we had one poster in the venue, and we just scored out the date, and then put the new one in. And unfortunately, claw. Uh, the two the two songwriters just had a massive fallout, and I think the lifespan of the band was about eighteen months. Just after they'd brought out like their debut album, which is still cited as one of the great unknown albums. I think like Enemy, you know, keep rehashing a feature of the hundred best albums you've never heard, and Claw is number one on that.
0: Well, let's do something to uh, rectify that uh, by playing yes. Love and Pain. This is Love and Pain by Claw.
1: That brings back good times.
0: Glad to hear it. And so they were putting on Club Claw. And tell me, who are the, some of the bands that, or some of the acts that would have played at Club Claw? Uh, Tom Vick, uh Probably the best known now would be Metronomy, but loads
1: of others, like Shit Disco. And, oh, it's a long time ago, but, yeah, there was, you know, a lot of good stuff on them.
0: Earlier on, we were talking about the sort of alternative country scene. Uh, and you were saying that there's, you know, there's there's great creativity and interesting bands. There's also quite a boring side of, you know, beardy blokes just playing the same old stuff. But two of the very interesting characters who you could associate with that to an extent. One is Daniel Johnson. And the other is Josh T. Pearson, who was in a fantastic band called Lifter Experience, who oh, yeah. had a great... Very- I had a very interesting experience with him at the windmill, which I, I will say in a minute. But firstly, Daniel Johnson, how is he? Because, I mean, he's such a hero to so many people, and he played the windmill. First of all, how did you get him, and what was he like? I think we got him by luck, but I think also maybe because
1: we had this Underground thing going or whatever, uh, was a promoter. I think he now works at DHP. He's doing quite well, but he had looking for Daniel to do a show. And it came in about four or five days' notice, and um, it obviously sold out in a flash at £15, which was quite a lot of money for a windmill show back in those days. So it still is. And yeah, it was just like an ex- just a fantastic experience, really, just having Daniel on stage and, you know, being uh, his brother was there, and Daniel came in and says to me, uh, can I have a glass of Coke, please? And I was asking the rest of the band, you know, what do you want? They're going, beer, beer. I went to go and get this. And his brother goes, on oh, no account, get Daniel a Coca-Cola. He can't have it. Just get him Diet Coke all night and he'll think it's Coke. And yeah, it works. And Daniel's got, thanks for the Coke, man. It's really good. Yeah, sure, Daniel. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was yeah quite an experience having Daniel in, just drawing things and whatever and signing autographs. And he seemed to have a really good time, bless him.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: Well, the other. And uh, and, and also, I think, you know, you mentioned in Josh, like, really, I don't think you'd describe Daniel Johnson or Josh Pearson as Americana. And I don't, you know, I don't think either of those would have wanted to be, but they come through that American tradition, I think. They're, you know, outsiders as well. And it was, you know, yeah, it really fitted in with the vibe of what we were trying to create.
0: Well, they're yeah, they're they're very American figures, but you don't you don't think America, you don't think it's definitely not uh, uh, you know bearded men. Well, Josh Pearson had a very big beard, but it's not the kind of plaid shirt world. Josh Pearson was a fascinating character. So, I think it was the first time I met you, Tim. This was about ten years ago, and he would just put out this album called "Last of the Country Gentlemen," which is this incredible kind of tortured romance classic with 10-minute songs about, uh, you know, about his, his troubled romantic life. And I was doing this interview with him. It was actually in the garden of the windmill, which is uh, just around the back. And the interview is going very well, and uh, he seemed very polite. You know, he is a country gentleman, this Texan, this kind of, uh, you know, very mm-hmm. formal, bearded Texan. And then um, halfway through this otherwise, you know, very pleasant experience, he threatened to kill me. And he said, apropos of nothing whatsoever, he said, yes, if if you misquote me, then um, unfortunately I'm going to uh, have to sidle up to you at a crowded place and just stick a knife into your gut. And I explained as calmly as I could that, you know, it probably wouldn't really be worth killing me just for a a misquote because then he'd have to spend the rest of his life in jail. And he said, well, you know, it won't be so bad. I'll get some good writing done. And then after that, of course, (laughs) I saw Josh Pearson again and he was – very pleased with the article, and he's incredibly polite. So he didn't kill me, which is nice to know. But I thought maybe no, we he's should a, play he's, a couple of songs gentleman. from that period. <laughs> so he's a country gentleman. So anyway, here we go. This is going to be It's Over by Daniel Johnson. Then we're going to go into Sorry with the Song by Josh Pearson. You broke
1: my heart in two, and I'm leaving this half with you to remind you what you've done to me, honey. I I don't make it right
0: and that was Sorry with a Song by Josh Pearson. Not the whole thing, because it goes on for about 20 minutes, but uh, you get the idea. So, Tim, one of the bands that's really associated with the windmill, or has been over the last 10 years, is the Fat White family. They, they've, they've, they're very uh, gracious about crediting the windmills as a very important place in their development. But also they they summed up some kind of uh, aspect of the place. So tell me when you first heard them and how they came to play at the windmill.
1: I think the first time they played was about 2011 and it took them a couple of years to get going because one of them was away working for a while. And... I wouldn't say it was a breath of fresh air, it was a breath of some type of air. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of smelly, sweaty air. And uh, I think the London music scene really, really needed something like Fat White Family at the time. It was just getting into bland indiedom or, you know, sort of some sort of half baked psychedelia or something like that. And I think just the attitude and just the, I think the contempt that Fat White family had for, you know, the indie music scene was just a, such a important thing to have happened. And one thing I'll say about Fat White family, it took them a while to actually get to play The Windmill quite regularly because they had this idea that they wanted to play Friday or Saturday night and I was going, guys, listen you bring 30 or 40 people and the only thing that's going to happen is Seamus is going to come down and scream at us all for about half an hour and nobody's got, nobody's going to have any benefit out of this. So I think a lot of people think that fat white family are just like sort of, you know, showboaters or whatever. And that's really not the truth, not the case, because again, that was, like Claude did, they went and actually went to a, a bar called Tulsa. Hill tavern i think it was and put that's now become a yuppie hotel gastro pub bar and they put on their own nights with the bands that they really liked like tam and shud and uh, probably the rebel played there and uh, meat raffle and people like that and created their own sort of scene uh, through a bit of hard work actually and by the time they were putting on regular nights at the waymill they actually had a following so you know the music industry outside of South London were thinking, where where's this band come from? But it wasn't an overnight success. It was, you know, good hard work and a bit of vision from them that they, you know, worked hard on. And I've uh, got a lot of respect for Fat White Family.
0: Well, I think what the Fat White Family did, I mean, I live in South London. I've got teenage children who, you know, who who who've been very inspired by them. What they really did is they showed that it's, and you're right, at that period, indie music <clears> had become very slick and it was all about it's all about becoming not really an indie band at all but becoming a stadium band and you know be showing what wonderful guys you are and what Fat White family did is they showed that it's possible for anyone to get up there with some ideas you know you put the hours in and everything but it didn't it wasn't it was it, was, it returned the DIY culture i think that's what they did and and that's why they've been inspiring because they made it seem possible uh, yeah DIY
1: culture and creation of a community around them as well Being part of that, I think that's I think that's really important, and uh, yeah, that's what they did. Wrote a few damn good songs as well.
0: Well, here's here's one of their best songs. This is called "Touch the Leather," and it's Fat White Family. that That was "Touch the Leather" by Fat White Family, one of the key windmill bands. My name's Will Hodgkinson. I'm here because I wrote a book called Roof Dog, A Short History of the Windmill, which is just out on Rough Trade Books. And I'm here with Tim Perry, who has been booking for the windmill for the best part of two decades now. And Tim, I wanted to ask you about some of the interesting characters that uh, have been been attracted to the place. One of them is a very famous party animal and uh, performance artist called Jack Medley. I believe now that the back room of the windmill, which is variously called the smoking shed or the uh, green room is also called the Jack Medley room. So, tell me about Jack Medley and why he's important in the history of the windmill. Oh, Jack! <laughs> uh, Jack actually uh, entered our world
1: uh, via another subgenre called anti-folk, which I think we should give a mention to because uh, we actually had quite a few anti-folk people playing, like such as Jeffrey Lewis. Uh, so Jeffrey Lewis uh, being yeah.
0: the, the, the key one.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, Jeffrey's on uh, from New York, but he's on Rough Trade Records. Jeffrey played a lot of shows here, but um, I think in response there was like a, a small UK anti-folk scene, which is, sounds a bit like the name suggests, like folk played loudly and often quite badly. And um, Jack, was, Jack was involved in that. He was uh, big mates with a band called Milk Can, but also then Jack would start putting on his own nights and some of those are just hilarious, but he would have a reggae shack, and the shed at the back where there is now a big mural to him was uh, the reggae shack, and it was just... <laughs> it was not the most professional DJ set up in the world, but, yeah, Jack um, has been around for a long time. Then he got really inspired by the likes of Fat White Family, Warm Doucher and Meat Raffle, and he was just a bigger, larger-than-life caner, And uh, unfortunately, last year he died with a lung complication and uh, we had a big, big, massive wake and party and some friends of his thought it'd be a nice idea to uh, do a mural, dedicate the room to him. And yeah, Jack lives
0: on at the windmill. He lives on in that back room. And actually, it might be a good time to just talk a bit about the interior of the windmill, because... You know, from the outside, the windmill does look slightly apocalyptic. But when you get inside, it's actually very nice. You've got the uh, the Jack Medley room has got a mural of him uh, with some of his famous phrases like, suck it up and stuff. And then in the main room, you've got, it's almost a bit like a kind of Henry Rousseau uh, tap, uh, uh, tableau. And I believe this was done by uh, a woman called Kimia Amini. Uh, how did she get to do this? What happened there? Ah, uh, Mia was in a...
1: Oh, well, it's still in a band called Primordial Soup, who play quite a lot. They've become more of a theatre troupe nowadays. But um, she was sort of at a loss in between finishing school and going to uh, arts, art college. And she said, could I, you know, paint the outside of the windmill? Because it was looking pretty drab. And uh, she did that, and then she was still bored and thought, Oh, Seamus can I do the inside? So, basically, spent the summer painting the place, and I think it looks great. It looks like the color scheme again. I get back to American dive bar, it's a lot of orange, a lot of blue. It almost has a southern Texan, Mexican style feel to it as well. And I think it really, you know, it, it makes it warm and nice. It's, 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 yeah, it's good, you know, uh, some like sort of you know yuppie bars or whatever will probably spend tens of thousands or whatever creating a space like that and you know it's much more better when it's just done diy organic like that
0: well it's much more artistic you know and it's also we should i should say for people who haven't been there it's got this uh yeah it's got these kind of these these lovely oranges but also these creatures on the wall these kind of phantasmagorical figures there's one which i think was her um, she had a, a puppet when that, um, which is now painted on one of the walls. So it's got this very imaginative feel, which kind of adds. Is that, to the, is, to, is, it, is that the one that sort of looks like a cross between Seamus and this
1: and Satan from South Park?
0: That's right, and he's meant to be. She, she said that Seamus used to sit on on the stool, which is where I think he's called. I can't remember what she calls him, but uh, she said that it was based on a uh, Woody. Woody, he's called Woody, and he's uh, yeah, that's the one. He's meant to be a little kind of. Um, a kind of magical amulet to to protect Seamus if he needed it I guess
1: oh that one. Oh, there's the one that looks like Satan and Seamus as well that's good that's too. the one
0: yeah yeah well mm. Seamus she, <laughs> features heavily I mean you said the cover of the cover of Roof Dog which was painted by my son Otto which I'll talk about in a bit it's <coughs> actually it's a it's a an illustration of uh, one of the Roof Dogs which which the uh Wimmel is famous for but you said that actually it looks a bit like Seamus too so somehow people keep people keep drawing shamers somehow in all these, in the, these the artistic artistic inspirations of the windmill. Anyway, on that note, let's let's play a couple of the songs we've been talking about. So this is "Suck It Up" by Jack Medley, and then we're going to go into "One Rizzler by Shane. Sucked up by Jack Medley, followed by one Rizzler by Shame. And Shame are another important windmill band and one that's done very well. So they kind of came in the shadow of the Fat White family and I believe that they were playing in their same rehearsal space. When did you first hear them? Uh,
1: Yeah, through Fat White family, really. Uh, Both of them were uh, rehearsing in the Queen's Head, which is now no longer really the same bar that it was back then. And uh, they were really young and quite ropey, but just really played a lot and got better very, very quickly. And uh, One Rizzler was... A lot of it was just sort of punky or post-punky dirge or whatever, but I thought, wow, that's a really good song, that One Rizzler. And it was uh, the first time they ever played, and I think it was the biggest song of their rather successful debut album as well. But, yeah, it's... uh, Shame or another band that really... Got the you know uh, are really good at doing their own nights and getting other bands involved, and I think that you know just as a booker, it's, it's always the best people, the best people to ask about good new bands or good new bands themselves, and you're going to get the best tips. So like in early shame gigs, like Goat Girl, a band called Fish, who would later become Sorry, uh, they all played and. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty important times. That was around probably about two thousand and fourteen or whatever, two thousand
0: and fifteen. How do you decide on booking bands? I mean, first of all, what do you what do you go on? Do you go on whether you like them or not? Do you go on whether they can draw a crowd? Because obviously, Seamus isn't going to be happy if you keep on if you have a lot of bands that are only you know bringing down three or four people. How do you, how do you work it out? I, would, I don't know, sort of go for the
1: long-term approach rather than... Well, look, if you wanted to get bands, if you wanted to have the place busy Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you'd book covers bands probably. Um, or, which you know, we don't something, do. No, which we don't do. and Or you could go down the route of, you know, trying to deal with agents and just getting the big band in or whatever. Or, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think the overall idea is just have something that's a wee bit left of centre and just run with it. And that sort of creates, you know, interest really. Uh, you know, it creates a community of people coming together and although they don't sound like each other, they've still got those sort of DIY ideals and sense of community about it and it becomes a thing, you know. If, if you talk- know what I mean, it's a, so you go like more for a long term approach rather than just taking each night as it comes and trying to get the maximum people in because you'll just fall down that way. You want to yeah. try and have an overall, want to have trying have an overall vision rather than you know big bands, big bands. The best thing to do is to try and make those band, bands bigger, and then they come back and you know do shows for you whenever they're. They could probably easily go somewhere else.
0: So what you're talking about is uh, really the reason why the windmills become so well known is is that the idea of that actually you you look out for interesting talent, and from that you kind of find ways to make it grow, as opposed to uh, yeah, to, and, and, a, and and and
1: yeah. and also preferably local talent as well, South London. I think there's a you know there's always you know getting back to the days of you know. Uh, British bar and Alabama three and or whatever. There was always a bit of a sense of maybe a chip on our shoulders about South London, you know. Uh, thinking that you know, well, people people never used to come to South London, you know. People go, oh, you know. Oh, They're still snobbish about
0: South
1: just, London. Yeah, but well, that's their loss, in it, you know. But yeah. uh, I, I think less so. I think less so now than it was a few years ago. Um. But the, the other thing about the Waymill is, is that it's sort of way on its own. So you can't combine that with another venue in South London. There's no other venue near it. So it's like a destination venue. So if you've got to come to see a band at the Waymill, that's basically your evening. You're not going to bar hop or go to a club afterwards or whatever, but you're not know, going to go check out another gig because it's just it's just a bit, bit out of the way. And I think
0: that's a good thing. Another. Well, we should yeah, we should say that for people who haven't been there. So you have Brixton, which is now very busy, but but then you have a at least a ten minute walk up the hill to get to the windmill, which is actually down a residential street. You know, it's next to mm-hmm. a, a, a post office sorting place, and so it's not. You know, you're not down there in in the heart of Brixton where you could just go from one place to another. You need to you need to get there, and once you're there, you're there. You know, and that's, that's the evening. So that's, that, I think that's very mm-hmm. important in terms of the creation of somewhere. Yeah, you have to be pretty good on Google Maps because you could miss it as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or we'll just use the idea. The A to Z will, will, will do too. I mean, one of, the person, <laughs> one of the people who clearly has been good at Google Maps because he's been coming there for a long time is a real legend. And this is Dama Suzuki. Now, Dama Suzuki was the guy that was, uh, was busking in Germany when he was spotted by members of Cannes. In the early 70s, and they are fascinated by this long-haired Japanese guy who seemed to make up his own language, and you know, he features on classic albums like Ege Bam And he has been playing at the windmill for quite a few years. Just tell me what how he does it and what his setup is, Tim. Well, if you book Damo
1: and he's not cheap, and rightly so, he's not cheap because he is a legend, um, you actually have to create the night yourself as a promoter. Uh so All Damo brings is a microphone. He's now bought a microphone. He didn't have one a few years ago, but now he's got his own mic, which is great. And uh, then you have to put a a backing band behind them, or as he calls them, sound carriers. So you get a band, and then Damo just ad-libs over it. He feels the energy of that band, and it comes out as, as vocalization. And you have to think about it. You know, it's easy... Um uh, back in the day, you know, before Damo, Damo was very seriously ill, by the way, for a few years, uh, with cancer, and uh, so he was out of the picture for about three years. But, you know, we put on some good motoric bands with them, but that was just a bit easy. And then, uh, you know, sort of anything, whether it be a bit of Krautrock or whatever and it, it was really good. But we thought, oh, let's uh, twist it a little bit, and maybe put on some younger bands, and... I'll come back. I'll come over to that in a in a minute. But really, basically, the format is is that Damo meets these people at Soundcheck, listens, and uh, then sort of reacts to it, and then usually put on a support band. And this always a good always a good sold out evening.
0: We had a so there was one night I had with my son Otto not so long ago where we went to go and see Damo Suzuki at the windmill and we were sitting at a table with him and he was there with his book, I Am Damo Suzuki, which he was selling copies of, had a pint of Guinness in front of him and the band had actually come on stage. The band was one called Phobophobes and it was quite amazing because Damo Suzuki was sitting there drinking his Guinness. The band were playing. I thought, oh, well, this must be the support band and then he just wandered off and joined them and that was it for the next (laughs) hour and a half. So he he clearly hadn't even he hadn't I, as far as I could tell there was there hadn't been any kind of rehearsal or, or anything like that he just went up and started doing it and it was uh, uh, no
1: he, uh, no he, he would have seen them at soundcheck but he was just getting further into the vibe or whatever so you know he, the man's got a drink of Guinness as well so uh, yeah he, he would, you know you might think he was sitting there signing books and drinking Guinness but he was getting
0: the he was getting into the vibe you know he was working too performing. yeah. Uh, yeah he was yeah yeah (laughs) he was all part of it well i mean the thing is it was it was totally inspiring because then he got up and it was it was it was captivating for the next hour and a half so i thought well yeah he he really deserves his legendary status on that note i think it'd be nice to hear a bit of can the band that damo suzuki made his name in this is one of the all-time classics hallelujah And featuring the legendary Damo Suzuki, a windmill regular. I'm here with Tim Perry, the booker for the windmill. My name is Will Hodgkinson. I'm here because I've just written a book called Roof Dog, A Short History of the Windmill, and we're talking about the Brixton windmill and its place in, well, I guess popular culture. Right now, Black Midi. Now, there is a windmill band, if ever there was one. And, and, there's, a big link. and there's a big with link with Damo, Damo Suzuki. Suzuki. Tell, tell us about Black Midi. What's the uh, name? Well... <laughs>
1: I got an email one day going, "Ah, oh, we're uh, we're at school and we want to have a gig and here's our stuff. We're loud." And I thought, "I will play it absolutely any time you just want to play the windmill. So I thought, "Any you say any time? Oh, Mondays are always hard to fill." <laughs> so we got them a gig on a Monday, <laughs> uh, uh, and there was a band called Leg Puppy, and they were sort of creating it or whatever. I go, "Stick these lads on, see what they're like." Sound check. What? What? What is this? It it's exam. like they all looked. They, they all looked about fourteen, and it was like, and they knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, there was probably they claim there was ten people at the gig. There was about twenty five. And um, oh, okay, it was not sold out. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was a Monday, you know, and um, I just. You know, me, the sign engineer, Darren from Leg Puppy, we're going, wow, this is like, what? You know, they're so good, but like, it's so uncommercial. But hell, if it's that good, it's got to get a, enough interest. And uh, we just gradually kept slipping them on with all the bands and whatever. And uh, people would just go, wow. And it was just one of those moments that it's just great. It really reminded me of Clover because that was like their absolute debut. You know, you got a band that does an absolute debut gig that hadn't done a gig anywhere else before and they just smash it and you know that, wow. You ask them, do you want to come back again? they went, like, yeah, sure, we'd love to. I go, yep, right. Uh, we'll, start, yeah. we'll start getting to work on this. And, um, you know, after a few gigs, every promoter in London was trying to offer them gigs and, I mean, big promoters and stuff like that. And I said to the guys, look, you know, really... You should just stay here. It's good for me, obviously. But this way, you're working with a sound engineer that you know, you're working with equipment that you know, and you can also name all the bands that you want. But I would suggest that you get Scotty Brains in there. Um, And uh, you know who Scotty Brains is, yeah? Uh, Yes, uh, it's Dan Ker- da- the Richard yep. Dan Carey's band, so that was actually quite cool. Yeah. That, yeah, um, you know that, that came out of that you hooked as them well. Up. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I've been trying to get Dan to see them for about six months. So I thought the only way I'm going to get, <laughs> the only way I'm going to get him to listen to them is to uh, is know, come and play on the same bill. <laughs> yeah, so so and that it worked. worked. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, so so the the Black Midi can connection. I mean, firstly, Black Midi backed up Damo Suzuki, you know, at the Windmill, which is a, a, an important gig, and I think it's recorded. Actually, I think there might have been. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, it. there was
1: a there was a little cassette on Bandcamp. Yeah, it was weird yeah. that night because. Um, you know, it's quite a, a demo and both, both demo and black midi bring a mixed crowd of, you know, through the ages from, you know, 18 to 68 or whatever. Um, because, like, you know, there's people who, people who love CAN or cardiacs or whatever like that. Older people really like saying black midi because it's some, you know, they just didn't, they can't put a finger, you know can't really put a finger on where all their influences are but yet also the kids love it because like hey this is new and exciting and bloody loud and uh the funny thing though was about the damo suzuki night black midi that like, didn't opening set, and then we actually did two sets for damo so they probably played nearly three hours in total and nobody actually said to me how good black midi were everybody just came up to me and went how young are they? It was you know, and yeah. uh, you know, saying you didn't even say they were good. People just go, how young are they? You know, these little kids. And, um, uh, yeah. And uh, every time I speak to Dam or email Dan, he's always asking me about how are the young boys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, they're very, I mean, they Geordie looks even younger than he is. But the thing is, the other thing, the other connection, I think, with canon and Black Midi is that they are both made up of very, very, very good musicians who want to improvise. So they're not mm-hmm. classical musicians, although there's a lot of classical training in there. You know, they're not jazz musicians as such. But they want to do something unusual. They want to uh, put in all these different time signatures, but at the same time, it's improvised. And that was that is, I think, the key, and that's what really marked Black Midi out from so many other bands. They're not they're not doing structured songs in the normal sense. They're you know they're doing these they're, they're out of these long improvisations. They're finding interesting things, which is exactly what can did. So you yeah, know that yeah, you can see okay. the connection. Another key figure in the windmill story and someone who actually lived opposite, who is uh, Mika Levi of the band Mika Chu and the Shapes. I wanted to know when you first booked Mika Chew in the shakes or when you first met Mika Levi. Oh, a long, long time ago. Tim? Uh, it,
1: it, it, it was a long, long time ago. Her, her label boss, who I, God, I can't remember his name now, he's quite famous, uh, used to live opposite the windmill, and uh, yeah, told us about her, and uh, then I think she popped up on quite a few gigs.
0: Yeah, I think that was Matthew Herbert from Accidental Records. It was, yes, uh, it
1: was Matthew. Yeah, of course. Yeah, sorry.
0: <laughs> and, uh, you know, Mika Levi now, uh, I'm not sure how many people know this, Is is become a very, uh, you know, very respected Hollywood soundtrack producer. She did the soundtrack to a Composer, she did the soundtrack to Under the Skin, she did the soundtrack to Jackie, uh, you know, the Jackie Kennedy biopic. And mm-hmm. she still pops in, right? She still does gigs every now and then at the windmill. Yeah, I think they, I think they actually played this year, because uh, they just
1: disbanded the name Mika Chua and the Shapes, because I, I'm presuming that they thought that just brought too much attention on Mika, and uh, they're now called Good, Sad, Happy, Bad, and really doing things just DIY, um, not making a big deal of it whatsoever, and uh, just popping up on bills, and uh, they always like suggest some really really cool artists. We had like uh, the last time they played, we had. An, like, Classical accordion player. It was just quite unusual having a classical accordion playing accordion classically, I think. And then there was a guy with trombones and samples and stuff, and
0: it's just like good, crazy. Interesting stuff. Well, let's hear a bit of Mikachu and the shapes. This is Oh Baby. Will Hodgkinson with Tim Perry, booker from The Windmill, talking about the history of The Windmill because of my book, Roof Dog, A Short History of The Windmill, which has just come out on Rough Trade. And some one of the bands, more recent bands to come out of The Windmill is Black Country New Road. And they seem to be part of this new scene of musicians who are very, very good, very good at what they do, and are combining all kinds of strange ideas. So I think maybe they, they've come in the wake of Black Midi, who, you know, everyone recognizes as a very young, incredibly talented band. Black Country New Road is sort of different. They, they sort of take a lot of influence from uh, the Kentucky band Slint, and then they have saxophones over the top, and a kind of almost like a sort of uh, gypsy jazz klezmer sound going on. When did you first hear Black Country New Road, Tim? They were in a previous band, or most
1: of them were in a previous band called Nervous Conditions, who actually played with Black Midi, but then um, that disbanded. And probably a couple of years ago, I think because there's seven of them, it's quite slow moving to get things going, but there's going to be an album on the way soon. But uh, yeah, that was another band of people who could really play well. Uh, like Black Midi went to... Uh, Brit School, uh, most of uh, Black Country, I think, or Guildhall, or have been. And them and Black Midi have been like sort of at the forefront of bands of composed of people who can play really, really well, but aren't noodly or boring, you know? So.
0: Yeah, got some interesting ideas. So, this, uh, is, one of the, this is one of the great Black Country <coughs> New Red songs. This is called Sunglasses. That was Sunglasses by Black Country, New Road. And there's a, there's a figure that a lot of the, of the young windmill bands, I was very surprised, were influenced by. Even my son loves this guy. Now, this is the rebel, Ben Wallace. He was in the Country Teasers, who he started the show with. And now he plays at the windmill fairly regularly. And he is just a completely unique character. He's got a brilliant songwriting approach. He kind of presents almost like the worst aspects of himself and he's actually a very nice guy. Um you know sort of rather than doing what most pop stars do and try and make out they're wonderful guys he he makes out he's a horrible guy which he isn't. He's very nice. And uh, so Country Teasers Tim and the Rebel the country teasers played at the windmill what maybe 15 20 years ago first time. Oh it's rather more like 2002
1: 2003. Uh, for country teasers. Well, and, that is 15, 20 years ago, yeah. Yeah, and they weren't the busiest nights in the world either. Uh And so it's quite like sort of strange in a way that then, you know, about 10 years later, you've got people like a Fat White Family and then more recently Goat Girl really citing them and Ben in particular as sort of muses and
0: uh big influences yeah very much so well i mean i went to a gig um by the rebel which is ben just before christmas and this was a kind of uh it was a sort of uh country night and i think tim you were djing some country songs and the rebel you know you wouldn't the country teasers you wouldn't think exactly as country music in the normal sense but he did do a version of that wonderful mel travis song i think it's called deep deep, deep down in the mine dark down the uh, Mine. Uh, uh dark as a dungeon i think is it dark as a dungeon dark as a dungeon that's it yeah and uh yeah it was a great night but the, what really fascinated me was that so i went there with my son obviously i had to pretend not to exist because uh you know no 18 no year old wants to be seen with his dad uh so i was kind of hiding around at the back but what i did notice that was that ben was selling his his homemade cds and he had this queue of kids some of whom i recognized as otto's friends all queuing up, wanting to meet him and buy the CDs for a fiver and talk to him. I mean, who would have thought that this man, now in his 40s, you know, who was in a band who never got big, would be the kind of key figure for this new generation of windmill kids? I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah, I suppose
1: country teasers, you know, they are known throughout the world in in the correct circles. So it's sort of cultish. So maybe that, you know, something to maybe, you know, adopt or whatever. But... Uh, I think everyone, at the end of the day, everyone, whether they know it or not, loves country music, and there is element in it, you know, uh, especially in the Rebels' solo sets. Like it's just a mashup of uh, sort of weird Appalachia meets Electronica, which is, like, just perfect in my book. And, yeah, that was quite a fun event, the Windmill Country Christmas concert with Black Middy playing as Hank Middy and uh, The Rebel and then we had Prima Queen who are a great emerging uh, all-female band uh, doing some of their own songs and also doing some fan covers of Dolly Parton
0: Well as a a memory of that wonderful night before we all stuck inside let's hear some this is Tammy Wynette by The Rebel followed by Milk Teeth by Prima Queen was Tammy Wynette by The Rebel followed by Milk Teeth Prima Queen which was the Wim Mills Christmas Party Artists which was a fantastic night also with Black Midi performing as Hank Midi, and you know a lot of this came about well the book the the Roof Dog book which which I've just published came about because we we're planning a trip to South by Southwest this would have been unfortunately an amazing showcase of windmill bands with sorry there's a band called drinking girls and boys choir from uh south korea who are going to play HMLTD. we're going to play and, and a very young band called pva who's who another um a recent windmill regular so tim you know We're still mourning the loss of our showcase and the talk we're going to do out there and everything else. But um, let's 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 talk a little bit about what it might have been, because I think you told me that um, my old friend stroke enemy, Josh Pearson, was going to uh, turn up. Is that right? Yes, that was a special surprise for you, yeah. He was, I don't know what weapon he was bringing, but he said he was coming.
1: Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that 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 would have been uh, quite nice to see Josh again. Uh, oh, it would he's lovely. Currently, he, he's currently living in Austin. But, um, yeah, the music on offer would have been very different from Josh. And me. we were, like, so stoked to have been, you know, even thought about never mind invited to do a showcase at south by southwest i know people say yeah it's corporate and blah 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 and it's not you know whatever yeah, you're uh, not gonna turn uh, it, down. No, it, it, it it's a week eating breakfast burritos tacos and tamales mate you know and uh, um as well as i think i i think it was just a really nice lineup as well uh, I think Black Country, New Road would have uh, intrigued America and probably smashed it like uh, Black mini did last year. Uh, Sorry, I've just had an album out on Domino, so People would have been primed for that. And HMLTD are just semi-bonkers, so it's always an element of America like that. And PVA uh, doing like a sort of live techno, uh, you know, sort of... 80s dance type thing as well is fairly unique, and I think stuff like that really, you know, goes down well at South by Southwest. So I think we could have really, you know, been on the map m- musically. Uh, sort of probably would have caused too many headaches of too many people want to get in touch and want to be a piece of the windmill, but if they're not from South London, they don't really get priority.
0: Oh, it would have been uh, great so, though.
1: You know, It, been it, it, it would have it would, it been, been absolutely fantastic just hanging out with, you know, like five or six sets of people who are just like you see all the time at the windmill, but instead we're in 27-degree heat in Texas, you know, with with tamales and tacos, which, just, which you
0: can't And not really forgetting – Great uh, ones That's very true. And also, you know, just going back to Josh Pearson, guns are very easy to get in Texas, and so it would have been an excellent time to see me, you know, have my – you know – Shot while I was in the middle of the talk, he could have actually, you know, shot me from the, from the audience, which would have been uh, a great finale to the to the to the night. He so it's, uh, it really a... very very sad of anyway. He, 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 he might have got a backstage pass and done it from behind. You know, you never know with Josh. Oh, I could have done. Yeah, you never know. I mean, he definitely, <laughs> he, but he's a showman. You know, he'd, he'd time it well. There's no question about that. <laughs> he'd, he'd he'd make the most of it. So we're we're talking about uh, we're talking about the the windmill. Uh, the Roof Dog Book, which I've just done for Rough Trade and what could have been one of the great South by Southwest moments. But, you know, I never say never. I mean, coronavirus put paid to that, but but uh, we haven't given up. We're going to still be doing things. So let's hear some of the bands that would have played at South by Southwest. This is Starstruck by Sorry and then National Police by Drinking Girls and Boys Choir. You're listening to me, Will Hodgkinson, and Tim Perry, booker of the windmill. Myself, I'm a music critic, just written a book called Roof Dog, a short history of the windmill. This is the Brixton windmill, of course, which we've been celebrating for the last almost two hours. And just before, when we realised that the South by Southwest wasn't happening, actually what had happened was that one of the bands playing PVA had booked a fundraiser at the windmill to get a bit of cash so they could eat some of those breakfast tamales out in Austin, Texas, then they found out that they weren't going. None of us were going. But they still did the gig. And actually, it became one of the last nights at the windmill. Tim, talk about that night. Uh, you, you must have some memories of it. It wasn't so long ago. It was, must have been about a month ago now. Um, this was PVA, who, uh, like you said, a kind of 80s influence, sort of live dance music band. Mm-hmm. And yeah, one but... of the new windmill bands.
1: Yeah, can we go back to Drinking Boys and Girls' Choir, though? They were so much fun, and we had them scheduled to play the Remill again in May, and uh, we had a really good new synth punk band called Wag, got to be supporting them, and it was one of the nights that I was really, really looking forward to. And not only did the South by Southwest thing get cancelled, but coronavirus put an end to uh, Drinking Boys and Girls' Choir tour, and uh, like to, if they were actually listening in... Korea. Big shout out to those guys and hopefully see them sometime in the future. Uh, nice at the band worth checking out. Uh, but yeah, PVA, uh, um, uh, yeah, they've come up very quickly and everything just seemed to be aligning correctly and then this came, just not like a, the opportunity of South by Southwest has been taken away from bands, but it's so many bands were just doing well and bringing out releases and getting things going and then everything's just come to an absolute standstill and I really feel sorry for the bands and gutted for them you know it's just a bit of extra publicity for us to go with South by size west and it's all well and good but we're talking about people's careers and lives here and it's really quite gutting for uh you know people not to have that opportunity I know there's bigger problems in the world where like people dying and stuff like that but it's still you know uh quite gutting for you know People have put so much work
0: in for everything to come to a standstill and you know it's really, it's really you know
1: losing money as well yeah
0: mm-hmm. well here we should say we, we need to we need to do a big shout out to a company called British Underground here and a guy called Crispin Parry. Because Crispin Parry is British underground, basically fund bands to get out to places like South by Southwest. And he put together the Windmill Showcase and he found a lot of money. And it's not easy to get money together for South by Southwest, you know, from Arts Council grants and so on. And then, you know, some of the bands were doing fundraisers to get a bit of extra cash. So I think it's really worth remembering here that these were young bands, probably most of them had never been to the States before there isn't a load of money around, you know, it's, it's, you know, most of them have got day jobs. It was really scrimping and saving. So it is a, it is a, it is a real shame that we couldn't do South by Southwest especially for the bands because they were, you know, it was was so much excitement, so much fun. So my main feeling now is that we've got to hold on to that excitement and, you know, potentially make it happen next year. I think that would be wonderful. I I don't see why it shouldn't because the whole of, it wasn't just us who couldn't go to South by Southwest, South by Southwest didn't happen you know the entire thing so i'd like to think that uh you know there is there's still plenty of showcases for the windmill still to do that would be that would be a you know a nice thing to uh nice to nice thing to have so i think we should just play uh, divine intervention by pva because that was one of the last nights at the windmill <laughs> divine intervention by pba uh, one of the last bands to play the windmill before coronavirus and so tim let me ask you what's happening in this period when we're all stuck you know because the, the windmill depends on it's it's you know it's not just a, a pub it's 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 a live venue you know most nights of the week so so what's everyone doing what's seamus doing what are you doing how how are you going to get through however long this period is going to last
1: well, that's the difficult part. You just don't know how long it's going to last. Obviously, you'd have to get... Well, we're entitled to a small grant from the government, but that's taxable. Uh, people on the payroll get paid. Uh, and it's just knowing how long it's going to go on for. I suppose the loans can be taken out. Uh, there's a band, who, one of the first bands who had a cancel, uh post-rock band called For Breakfast, felt so guilty about self-isolating that they set up a GoFundMe page for us, which uh, we haven't really pushed, but there's c- quite a bit of money in there for a contingency, and we're probably going to bring out a live at the windmills sort of compilation of nothing you know, fancy, like uh, f- fairly rough mixes of uh, you know bands playing live from the windmill. It just keeps things ticking over. Um, can't really go ahead with booking... Uh, really because you don't know when it's going to be but we're keeping in touch with all the bands you know that we know well and i think whatever the ban on you know like music venues being open is lifted there's going to be some mad parties you know bands are asking we can't wait to get back it's just going to be like yeah. independent venue weeks to the time of 10 you know uh just the element of partying that will be going on so uh it's just sitting tight really,
0: can, I guess. There's, there's- there's a lot of goodwill. I mean, I should say this is, uh, I know, you know, this too much shameless plugging, but, but uh, the profits for the, for Roof Dog, which, you know, it's only a small book. It's on, it's on rough trade. It's, it's, uh, it's a labor of love, really. Um this is Roof Dog, a short history of the windmill. We're going to put some profits towards the windmill. So, you know, whatever that, whatever that is, oh, yeah, hopefully that'll, that, be, yeah. that'll help a little bit. So, well, I just say I hope people buy it because then that would that, that money will actually go towards the windmill and, and hopefully just make sure that it's this magical place, this amazing place, which has meant so much to so many of us, is still gonna be there. We're we're on the other side of it. That's the important thing, is that we okay, we've got to get through this period, but we've got to make sure there's there's life on the other side. And that life means places like the windmill, it means bands being able to survive it means all the things that we love and the, the various ways in which people, you know, express themselves and make life worth living. So I think that's really, really important. So, right. um, yeah. yeah, please buy Roofdog, please support the windmill. Um, and you know, tomorrow. And, Tim, and also, also, we would also have been having... ba- could I could have just say we'll also support the,
1: bands, support the bands, all the bands, that, uh, you know, if there's a band you like, hopefully one of the bands that we've played, but you know, if there's a band you like, everybody's got merch and band camp or whatever you know just make a contribution keep bands ticking over uh because a lot of you know not many of them have got good jobs you know so it's important to look after the bands
0: it's very important and also i've I've just been doing an article on this where i talked with a bunch of bands and they said you know i mean streaming is not going to make any difference to them this is the time to for small bands do band camp for bigger bands Buy the albums from independent record shops. You know they're still they're still they're still shipping out records. You know if you buy them buy them from Rough Trade or Norman Records or you know any any of the independents. They're still so you know buy the albums, use Bandcamp and buy the merch. You know these small bands that do the merchandise themselves. That that all helps. So definitely you know this is the time to support bands to make sure that they're there when we get when when, when we get on the other side of this. Yeah, Bandcamp's so, making a bit of a comeback. Bank camps, been doing. Really, people have been supporting them. Yeah, it's been really good. And actually, for a lot of the, the bands that have played the windmill, they will have band camps, and you can, and this is the time to use it. You know, what is it, seven ninety nine or something for an album? I mean, it's not much. Everyone can afford that. Oh, four so, quid, four quid. Four, four quid for the black MIDI one. <laughs> there you go. Not much at all. Definitely worth it. So Tim, we would have had the launch for Rooftop tomorrow night, and it would have been with. Um, it would have been with The Rebel. It would have been a band with a new band called Great Dad. Well, not that new, but, uh, you know, another windmill band. And we would have had the Goat Girl DJs playing. So it would have been a really great night. And I think, yeah. in, in a way, I'd like to kind of celebrate it. by. I'd like to finish this radio show by somehow celebrating what could have been tomorrow night at the windmill. Indeed. Which we, which would have been uh, so. So maybe have you got any idea of what song we should play to to finish this off? I think we should play one of the early ones, "Country Sleeves," which rounds the show off because
1: it's a nod to the country teasers and uh, the rebels. So we're starting and finishing in some sort of loop, and it keeps on going.
0: I think that's a very good idea. So I have been Will Hodgkinson. Roof Dog: A Short History of the Windmill is out now. My son, Otto, did all the illustrations, including one of the legendary roof dog, Ben, who we never even got to talk about. And Ben, woof. So there's actually before we play Country Seas, we've got to talk about the roof dogs a little bit. So tell us about the history of the various dogs that have lived on that flat roofed pub at the top of Brixton Hill.
1: Well, it's a flat roof pub and in the old days when, you know, they're next to Council of Estates, you know, full of supposed wrongs or whatever. Uh, and the uh, landlords lived above the the public shame it still does. Instead of the best security system is a dog. So uh, there's been like several sets of dogs. Um like at the start of the century there was Ben the Alsatian, then for a time that overlap was Brandy the rather nasty Rottweiler. Oh no, sorry, um what's that? Doberman. Uh he's a chocolate Doberman and then Ben, the Rottweiler, who probably had the longest tenure uh, and the biggest personality. People thought he was aggressive and vicious, but he was really a big puppy. Um, uh, he inspired the whole Roof Dog thing. There was some kids come up one night to a gig from Portsmouth. They come up to see Get Kit, Work, Kit, Fly, and they just fell in love with the venue. And uh, the next thing I got an invite to a Facebook page, uh, I believe in Roof Dog. <laughs> I went, what's this? He goes, yeah, we've got to get everybody like Roof Dog. <laughs> you know, so uh, that was the sort of legend. Which roof Dog shirts, T-shirts, beer, and now a book, <laughs> you know. So uh, Ben um, is always, whenever it refers to Roof Dog, I think it refers to Ben, even though like uh, the current incumbent Lucky, who is a, a rather gorgeous looking uh, all black uh, German shepherd. Uh, he just doesn't have that barking personality that Ben
0: had. Well, Ben was, you know, I remember you saying that Ben had his favourites and uh, he had this this winning personality. He's the kind of dog that would talk to people. You know, he'd start sort of whining in in, in very sort of expressive ways. But you did tell me a story about some people he didn't like. I was wondering if you could tell us about that. I, I believe they were French and I believe they belonged to the Gothic subculture.
1: Uh, well, yeah, there was one day and everybody was having a good time and uh, these people were looking uh, very uh, glum and dressed in black and, I don't know, he just had a piss on them.
0: as dogs do Fair enough, yeah. He expressed himself in the only way he knew how. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Tim, Tim, it's been a real pleasure. I'm hoping I'm going to get to see you soon. I, hoping we're, I really am looking forward to having a Guinness with Dama Suzuki back at the windmill. Before too long, mm-hmm. that, yeah. That, hopefully
1: that'll I know. well. Uh, hopefully that'll be November for Damo, so uh, all well, things very well, well.
0: But let's hope we're there before then. You know, I mean, oh, much I,
1: much sooner. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Ho- hopefully in June we've got five nights of the Rebel coming up, so uh, that'll be a good way. Well, to that kick would be off great. Again.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thanks great. very much, okay. Will. Okay, thank you. And let's finish. So, so I've been Will Hutchinson. That I've been speaking to Tim Perry. You're listening to Soho Radio, and we will say goodbye with Country Sleaze by Go-Go. Goodbye. I am a country sleaze nobody will